Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, June 30th. Ahead of Canada Day, we discuss what it means to be Canadian and how our nation is perceived internationally. We get the thoughts of former Canadian ambassador Sabine Nolka. Are you struggling to find a family doctor? If so, you're not alone. We discuss the doctor shortage in our province and explore what can be done to attract more physicians with Dr. Vesta Michelle Warren, president of the Alberta Medical Association. Next, can we learn from our failures? Well, according to psychologist Dr. Samuel West, we most certainly can. We catch up with Dr. West to tell us all about the museum he created on the topic, the aptly named Museum of Failure. And finally, are you ready to take your Canada Day barbecue to the next level? We catch up with Michelle Tam, the head of beer education at Labatt Breweries, for some tips on food pairing and recipe suggestions using beer as a key ingredient. Is Canada perceived in a positive light on the international stage? And has that perception changed in recent years? Joining us to discuss further is Ms. Sabine Nolka, retired Canadian ambassador. Good morning to you, Ms. Nolka. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for, for joining us. And I'll give you a pre-happy Canada Day. I know we're a little Thank early. you. And yeah. you too. Thank you so much. So we're going to open this up to you. We've put it out to our listeners and they can always text in their thoughts. If they if they want, because we love hearing, uh, you know, what we think of ourselves, but also what others think of us. So how is Canada viewed on the international stage, do you think? Uh, Generally, I think pretty positively. Um, We are um, I mean, we are part of an alliance of liberal Western democracies. Uh, We are a major donor to uh, international development, peacekeeping, humanitarian assistance operations. Um, so our relations in general, I think, are, are very good with, uh, with just about um, everyone except some of the more hostile actors out there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, yeah, I think uh, overall, I think it's a positive. You know, we used to be known as a peacekeeping nation across the globe. Canada, we were the peacekeepers. Has that changed? Is that descriptor changed when it comes to Canada? Um, I, I think it depends on who you ask and, and how you look at it. Um, if you're thinking of a peacekeeping nation as one who supplies peacekeeping troops, uh, that has certainly changed. Um, we used to have hundreds out there. I think right now our strength, uh, military and uh, civilian police deployments, is down to about uh, 60 globally. Um, but um, what we are doing and where we have shifted, I think, is um, but but that is quite unsexy as opposed to to the outside observer, is as a supporter of the UN's peacekeeping architecture. We are one of the largest contributors to peacekeeping operations. I think it's about $260 million a year. Um, we are supporting the um, initiatives by the Secretary General to reform and make more efficient and reliable and effective and all of those good things, uh, UN peacekeeping operations, uh, including by, uh, for example, um, 
engaging in uh, rather leading on uh, UN annual um, UN's annual uh, ministerial meeting on peacekeeping, which uh, which looks at things like um, transitions in peacekeeping operations. You know, when one lead nation decides to leave an operation, who steps in? That kind of transition uh, can be quite uh, um, difficult at times um, if you don't have anybody to step up. So, so looking at the underlying architecture, you know, how to improve it, how to bring more women into the issue. Uh, I know some people will roll their eyes saying, oh, yeah, Canada and, and women. But, uh, but when you're looking at stabilization operations, um, having, uh, having female soldiers, having female officers, female peacekeepers, and um, also um, negotiators in there, um, helps in a lot of um, a lot of areas, particular areas affected by sexual gender-based violence, like the DRC, for example. So, so we'll be looking at these structural issues, and there we are a very, very active player and very highly regarded. You mentioned, uh, Sabine, the fact that we have great partners across the globe, like-minded partners, and you know we have a, you know we have a role among the NATO and G7 countries. How important is it for Canada to have a seat, uh, you know, uh, with NATO and with these G7 countries and, 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 and meetings? And, and do we really, can we make a difference because we are such a small country? Um, we are a small country, but, but look at our economics, uh, our GDP. I mean, we are one of the reasons we're in the G7 is because we are one of the highest GDP nations on the planet. So, yes, uh, our, I think our contribution, our voice at the table is extremely important. Where, where we excel, where we have our niche, really, is in, uh, in innovation, you know, looking at... Um, and new initiatives to uh, to register um, globally. Uh, again, um, we have um, we led, for example, at the Shalwa Summit, created the um, um, the, the gender um, equality advisory council. Again, you know, advancing the role of, of women around the planet in economics, in public, li- in economic, commercial, and public life. Um, engages half the population, so having those kinds of initiatives, I think, is uh, is what uh, what sets us apart. Um, we created things like uh, we we are stronger on climate change than historically, for example, the U.S. has been. Um, so our contributions there with the the Oceans Plastic Charter. I mean, those things they sound like slogans, mm-hmm. but they'll have a huge impact globally. And, uh, and there we absolutely make a, a vital, I think, contribution. Sabine, uh, I think that everybody is familiar with what cha- what's happening in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, and, and uh, I know that we've opened our, our borders to Ukrainian refugees. Something that uh, I believe we've been known for being that safe harbor for those in need across the globe. Do you think that we are doing enough and do you think that we still hold that reputation as Canada being that place where those without a country or those in distress can come? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I know that our uh, Immigration, Refugee and uh, Citizenship Canada, uh, our department, works extremely closely with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and the International Organization for Migration. Um, it's, it's one of the biggest partnerships, I think, that we have in the multilateral area. Um, I'm not quite sure at this point about the numbers, um, whether we you know, could or should take more. I mean... The need clearly is out there. Um, 
the answer is probably we could always take more, mm-hmm. but uh, but we certainly uh, are pulling our weight. I mean, we take about I think eighty five thousand or so refugees a year. Um, we are one of the highest refugee um, receiving countries in the Western world. I mean, clearly the the largest destination countries are the neighboring states to uh, to Ukraine, like Romania, Moldova, Poland, etc. But um, but we uh, we are doing our bit. Absolutely. Earlier this year, uh, it was a, a case of uh, divisiveness in our country, the freedom convoy that all uh, Canadians were watching happening and unfolding in the nation's capital. How was uh, our handling of this scene internationally? I know we had a lot of headlines within our nation, but did it change the view of, of Canada on the world stage? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think there was a bit of bafflement as to why we didn't deal with this sooner. Um, because I mean, it, it, it was an occupation. I, I live in Ottawa, so you could you could hear the horns. I, I don't live in Centertown, but uh, but you could hear the horns um, pretty much around town. Um, I, yeah, I think the the perception internationally is like, what are they doing? Why aren't they clearing these guys out? Or you know, how can a truck be parked literally under the window of the prime minister's office? So there was a fair bit of bafflement there. I think that that we didn't respond faster, sooner, and and, uh, and more solidly. But uh, if you're thinking of this as having um, affected views on how we look at the right to assembly or free speech or anything like that, um, no, I think the only criticism you saw there was from right-wing authoritarians mm-hmm. um, for whom, you know, free speech means uh, I can I can be as nasty as I want, uh, to put it bluntly. Um, so, so no, I I don't think it's really changed, except that um, we were regarded as a bit too nice, I think, about the matter mm-hmm. amongst our close allies. A very interesting perspective. We appreciate your time and, and your words this morning. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. That is Sabine Nolka, Canadian ambassador, uh, now retired. Doctors are in short supply in Alberta, leaving many Albertans without a family physician. What needs to be done to fix Alberta's healthcare system in this area? With insight, we are joined by Dr. Vesta Michelle Warren, Alberta Medical Association President. Good morning to you, Dr. Warren. Good morning to you, Andy. How are you doing this morning? Good. Thank you for joining us. So, so why are why are so many doctors leaving the province? Uh, our doctor shortage is multifaceted. We've had many physicians choose to leave Alberta for a number of different reasons. I think the biggest one is that healthcare workers are in short supply everywhere, not just in Canada, but globally. And because of that, we're starting to see a very competitive market uh, with signing bonuses and uh, other incentives to recruit physicians to areas of need, whether it's other provinces in Alberta, or pardon me, other provinces uh, other than Alberta, or even, you know, other countries like New Zealand and Australia. Uh, so we're seeing that. The other thing that we're seeing, though, too, and our data shows is a lot of physicians uh, are just retiring. They've decided they've worked hard over the past couple of years. They've gone through COVID, and they've reached a point where they, they just can't do it anymore. And so many are choosing to retire away from family practice and no longer provide that type of care. And others are moving into different facets uh, of the healthcare system. So rather than working as a family physician in their office, in their community, looking after patients, they're now doing other jobs, equally important, uh, but it does take them away from that role. So things like working in the hospital system as a hospitalist 
or uh, moving into niche practices like virtual care, uh, mental health, that sort of thing, where they then provide a, a very needed but more focused spectrum of care. Boy, you said it on the uh, outset there, Dr. Warren, very complex, a lot of moving parts. Uh, but, you know, if this is the case, that we're not only competing with our neighboring provinces, with, with other countries going through doctor shortages, what do we do to get an edge, to attract more doctors to move to Alberta? Obviously, the obvious thing is to, you know, bring more out of school, but that takes the time. But what can we do to, to attra- attract uh, doctors? One of the things that I think Alberta really has an edge on, or uh, at least historically, is Alberta led the way when it comes to primary care and really pursuing something called the patient's medical home. And by that, I mean having a uh, family physician and group of practitioners working together to provide that care for a patient uh, over the long haul, so cradle to grave medicine. We created things called primary care networks and led the country in that, uh, and now we're starting to see those being implemented in other provinces. We are working uh, different ways of funding primary care, different ways of funding physicians to promote team-based care, to promote the ability to look after all those facets of health in a patient, such as lung capitation. Uh, we led, again, Canada in that, and we're now starting to see that as being a model of choice in Nova Scotia, for example. So Alberta historically really has gone out of the way to do things better, to look at what are we doing, how can we make it better for patients, uh, for Albertans, uh, to make sure that we've got a form of health care that can be uh, funded into the future, providing good evidence-based care. And that attracted people to us. Like in the night, you know, 2019, uh, 2018, if you talk to graduates coming to Alberta, a lot of those family physicians came because they liked what they saw in terms of the vision uh, of our province. And that's what we need to get back to. We need, a, we need an agreement with this government that provides that direction again, that we can work together with all of those stakeholders to, again, regain our lead. And I think that will help attract physicians back to Alberta, proving that we can do it better. Could we utilize uh, nurse practitioners in our province to help bolster, uh, you know, uh, the system, you know, maybe use them in different ways, in ways that perhaps uh, doctors have done in the past, but but give them additional responsibilities that they're certainly capable of? I am very much in favor of what we call team-based care and having every member of the team working to their full scope. With nurse practitioners, there are many... Uh, who choose to leave the field of nursing, for example, and go and become a nurse practitioner. When they do so, they actually have to choose at the front what type of nurse practitioner they're going to be. So there's only some of the nurse practitioners out there that are actually trained in primary care. And so uh, their training is much more limited. There's not as many of them as there are available. But they provide excellent care. They don't replace a family physician, but they complement a family physician, and they work together um, to provide those teams. And so absolutely, I think we know that we're short of physicians across Canada and globally. We know it takes, on average, 7 to 11 years to train a family physician. Uh, They have to go through an undergraduate degree, medical school, and then their residency program, and that's being extended by a year. So now it's going to take three years before you're going to have one. The issue is we have an immediate need. 
So we have to use those people that we have now. The other group that I think we can see a real future for here in Alberta is a physician assistant. These are being used in Manitoba. They're being used in Ontario. They're trained uh, very similar to a nurse practitioner in that they have a bachelor's degree and then do two years of training after. The difference, though, is they come out uh, of their training ready to work in any field. So they're very much a more general type training. And then depending on where they're hired into and where they work, they then specialize into that field. So like um, many things, if you have a program that's two years and you have somebody on the ground ready to go, it's, it's a whole lot faster. So I think we need to look seriously at all of the options. I think we need to be involved in that process as physicians to again, work with our team, uh, whether it's uh, pharmacists, uh, nurses, LPNs, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, we all provide unique skills that the others don't, uh, and we complement one another. And I think where I and other physicians um, are upset is when it's felt that they're replacing a physician because they cannot replace that physician. Underscoring the compliment, the compliment part. We 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 have to leave it there for yeah. We have to leave it there for for time, Doctor Warren. But thank you so much for your insight. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is Doctor Vesta Michelle Warren, President of the Alberta Medical Association. What can we learn from our failures and the biggest failures in the history of the world? Joining us with expert insight and details on what's called the Museum of Failure is Dr. Samuel West, psychologist, innovation researcher, and founder of the Museum of Failure. Good morning to you, Dr. West. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. Well, you had a success. You created a museum about failure. <laughs> uh, what? It's, paradox, it's a paradox that my greatest success, it's a museum of failure. Featuring our failure. It's a weird one. So, so how, how does this idea come about before we get into what we can see in this museum? Uh, my research was focused on how companies can become more innovative and uh, over those five to ten years it became more and more clear that it wasn't a lack of uh, tools it was a fear of failure that held many people and teams back so I started playing with that how could we how can I communicate the exciting message of Museum of Failure um, in another way not write a book or do a talk uh, and the museum was a perfect vehicle for this all right, uh, we're going to get into the lessons we can learn. Uh, but first, could you give us some examples of the displays of these failures? Uh, give us a couple of uh, known failures. There's, there's all kinds. Of, so there, there's, I've really tried to get a nice wide selection. So there's food failures, food innovations like uh, Crystal Pepsi, a clear soda from yes. the 90s. Or do you re- are you old enough? Do you remember oh, yes. uh, Coke? Oh, yes. I remember the clear Pepsi. Remember? I remember the new Coke recipe, brand new. You Coke remember Pi- the yeah. new Coke. All right. That's that's cool. It was in the 80, I believe it was 85, 86, when uh, Coke decided they did their own sort of research and found out that people actually prefer the taste of Pepsi. Um, and so they changed the recipe of Coke. And that's why. And then, of course, uh, consumers are like, well, I don't touch my brand. This is my Coca-Cola. <laughs> And so you see on the cans today, it says Coca-Cola Classic. It's not new Coke because that one failed. So, you know, but here's the thing, Dr. West, and we're digressing here. I believe that was a ploy all around. You come out with a okay. new Coke. You know, it sounds like, you know, this is good. It, 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 it didn't taste the same. You can't call, so you can't just name something a classic. But in this case, they could name it a classic because they'd have the new Coke and then Coke Classic, right? So they, okay. they created classic. That's my thought. 
I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you sort of half not entirely right on that one, but on the there's a there are like sort of ideas that Cook uh, did this as a really uh, ex, 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 genius marketing ploy because what happened was people started when, when they found out that their the real the classic Coke was yeah. disappearing, people started hamstering Coke. So <laughs> the sales of Coca Cola went skyrocketed. Oh. So, but the, the executives actually were quoted saying after this and when they you know, the whole mess was over. They're like, yeah, we've heard these theories that it was all a, um, a, a, a marketing ploy, but honestly, we're not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we, we're really tight for time, but I want people to know it's it's, it's South Center. Uh, South people Center people can come check it out. Who who should be checking it out? Is there an age-specific, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, range? Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's for everybody. So we've seen when when children go with their grandparents, then it's kind of more of a walk down nostalgia lane, mm -hmm. more so maybe than the focus of, of failure. But it's good for. So there's two there's two groups. Of, you know, anybody who's remotely interested in in learning from failure rather than, or who's also tired of this relentless focus on success that our society. Um, is, is obsessed with uh, and also organizational teams so if you have a team if you have a small team or a big team take take your team down there and learn from other people's other companies failure so you can avoid those failures yourself so some great advice we really appreciate your time this morning and we'll be checking out your success in opening the museum of failure thank, thank you. you so much dr west Thank you. Dr. Samuel West, psychologist, innovation researcher, and founder of the Museum of Failure. You can find out more online, museumoffailure.com, and it does open up tomorrow at South Center Mall. Limited hours, I believe it's from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., or sorry, my bad, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. tomorrow, and it'll be open right through till August 31st. Do you cook with beer or know what meals pair best with your favorite brew? Our next guest has the inside information to help you take your Canadian uh, barbecue, your Canada Day one, and, uh, you know, make it the next level for you, your guests, your family and friends. We're joined by Michelle Tam, head of beer education at Labatt Breweries of Canada, maybe has the best job in the world. Good morning to you, Michelle. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. So, yeah, this is it. I, and I, we were talking on the program how you celebrate, and a lot of people said getting together with family and friends, and obviously with that comes food and beverage, but we want to be unique. So let's start with beer, not necessarily pairing, but cooking with beer. This is something that really came on my radar only in the past 10 years or so. Are you finding that more people are cooking with beer? Absolutely. I think uh, especially coming out of the pandemic and what we're finding is that one of the behaviors that Canadians have taken on that likely isn't going to go away is the exploration of cooking and uh, exploring recipes uh, and cooking and entertaining at home. Um, so with that, there's this increased confidence and creativity when it comes to cooking and really taking it to the next level, adding some more flavor, bringing some more variety um, and experimentation to what you're cooking at home. Integrating beer into the cooking is a great way to do that. So give us some examples of how we use beer in, in a food dish. Uh, there's lots of applications one of the easiest ones that you can uh, very simply do over uh, uh, your celebrations over the weekend is to create salad dressing um, and you think that what makes a really great salad dressing there's a little bit of like a zip a tang acidity to it um, you have uh, a, a, an oil base to it um, and then you have some sort of flavoring to it as well and uh, if you take a beer style very similar to like a belgian style wit beer 
Cougarden is a great example of that. That's got um, orange peel in it. It also has uh, coriander spice to it that gives it this herbaceousness. It's almost like if you were adding a citrus juice to your salad dressing and a little bit of kind of your pepper and your spice to it. So if you take your um, fresh orange juice or fresh lemon juice or fresh lime juice with a little bit of oil and you add in something like a Belgian-style wit beer, it's almost like putting those ingredients into the dressing. Mm. You throw them all into a bottle or into a, a salad dressing bottle and you give it a good shake and you're really bringing all that liveliness of the beer into the salad dressing and put that on your favorite summer salad. And how about a marinade? I, I sometimes marinate certain cuts of meat. Is, is that is that a, a go or am I doing things wrong? Oh, absolutely. You have a little bit of that alcohol in the beer that's going to help tenderize your meat, but also bring in so much flavor. You generally want to go with um, a, a malt-forward beer, so a beer that's okay. not too bitter or hoppy. Um, an American lager is a great uh, option to do that with, uh, like Budweiser. If you add that into your marinade, you're going to get a little bit of that tenderizing action to it, but you're also bringing that malt flavor and uh, and to really help develop what makes a really good kind of that outer shell on your barbecue and on your ribs, that sticky, that sweet, that caramelization, the beer is going to be able to help you do that. You know, one more sure. piece of business before I give you my address so you can send me uh, 200 beers to celebrate Canada Day tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> but here it is. We had this debate on the program. We have one minute on the clock. The debate is this. Enjoying your favorite beverage, your beer, your favorite beer. Is it drinking it mm-hmm. out of the can, drink it out of the bottle, or pour it into a glass to get that full flavor from a brew? What is the right way, Michelle? Doesn't matter if it's a can or bottle, but absolutely pour your beer into a glass every single time. Everything that you want to experience in a beer, to smell it, to taste it, it will smell better. It will taste better if you pour into a glass. Pour it, make sure there's a nice head of foam on top. That's what I call the aroma delivery device. That snap crackle pops with lifting the aromas out of the glass into your nose. If that beer smells better, it tastes better. It's also lifting some of that gas and carbonation out there so you don't feel as bloated. And then you're able to have another round and as well another bite of whatever you're cooking up over the weekend. Yeah. The aroma delivery device. Is that what you called it? <laughs> putting my trademark on it. Well, I like that because, you know, you think when you're doing any wine classes or wine education, they talk about the importance of the bouquet in your nose. But maybe we forgot about that when it came uh, to enjoying our cold beer, particularly on Canada Day. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Michelle. We appreciate it. And happy Canada Day to you. Happy Canada Day and enjoy responsibly. That is Michelle Tam. Certified Cicerone and Head of Beer Education at Labatt Breweries of King. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.